Tonight's talk is called Anti-Fragile Dharma. And some of you may have read or heard of Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile. And the concept he says is that things can actually gain from disorder and chaos. He writes, Anti-fragile is that which is beyond resilience or robustness. The resilient resists shocks and stays the same. The anti-fragile gets better. So the whole idea is the Dharma is it can make us better during difficulties. It can make us even better when there's stress. The Chinese character for crisis actually reflects both danger and opportunity all at the same time. And really the core of Buddhism is teaching anti-fragility. It teaches us these three things about there's stress in life and that's part of it. There's impermanence and there's no self. And if you really get those things to the core, you enter what's called the deathless. You enter this ability to be anti-fragile, to be impervious in some ways to the difficulties of humanity you know who you are. You know what's beyond, what's deeper than the stress, the impermanence, and the blending with self that we do. And really, I think anti-fragility and what the Dharma teaches us is a deep listening to what's deeper than just what we see and the chaos of our minds and the chaos of our culture. It's listening to something really still and quiet inside. And that's a great gift of the Dharma, is listening. And as a culture, we don't talk a lot about listening, but listening is, is probably one of the most important things, listening and sincerity. And I know you all have sincerity because you're here tonight, and you're all able to sit still, so you have some ability to listen inside. So it's making that stronger. And you might ask yourself why you meditate, like we talked about in the beginning. Why? What are we trying to cultivate with by being still? What are we trying to cultivate by being human? What's the deepest thing you know? Know from your gut. That's listening. And whatever that is probably is pretty anti-fragile. Pretty able to sustain you through chaos. You really come to the deepest, truest thing that you know. The Dharma and sitting practice is beautiful because it keeps pointing us to this deepest, truest thing we know. Away from here, head, and into your core. The Hawaiians believe it's the center of the center. It's not just your center, it's the center of all things. That's anti-fragile. In the Zen tradition, they talk about your unborn nature starting to know that. That's why we meditate, the timeless unborn. And we're not trying to create another something. (laughs) I might talk about it as something, but it's not. So this knowing the difficulties of the world makes us anti-fragile. My favorite sutta in Buddhism is the Lokavipati Sutta. And it's about the eight worldly conditions. Gain and loss, praise and blame, status and disgrace, pleasure and pain. 
These are constantly happening thousands of times a day. But we generally want to keep one versus the other. And we fail to watch this vicissitudes of these things just happening over and over again. Gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, disgrace and fame. And what the Dharma teaches us is who we are below all of those things just happening constantly to everyone and everything. That's anti-fragile. Who you are, that's not about those things. The Buddha actually said this, and he used like the original anti-fragile teacher, right, 2,600 years ago. He said, gain, loss, status, disgrace, praise, blame, pleasure, pain. These conditions among human beings are inconstant, impermanent, subject to change. Knowing this, the wise person, mindful, ponders these changing conditions. Desirable things don't charm the mind. Undesirable ones bring no resistance. In a wise person, welcoming or rebelling come to an end. Welcoming or rebelling come to an end. Knowing the sourless state, a wise person has gone beyond becoming to the further shore. It's gone beyond becoming. And that is the ultimate goal of practice. If you want it, you don't have to do that. And there's not a you that does it anyway, but if that's something that there is a yearning or commitment to, it will be there for you. And I work with this young woman that's in her 20s, and she was asking me the other day, what's the most important thing you've ever done? Only 20-year-olds can ask you these great pointed questions, you know. So I'm like thinking 35 years of practice, and I just told her, I said, you know, I made a sincere intention when I was like 22. I was standing in the rain and middle of Seattle on a street after meditation just like this. And I said, I want to be free whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. I don't care. If it takes losing everything, my limbs, my sanity, I just want to be free. And I didn't even know what freedom meant. And that sincere intention is really what led me. It wasn't the effort. It was the beginning of it, and one makes effort one day at a time, one year at a time, but that was it. One completely earnest, sincere intention. So I really encourage you to to make that if you haven't made that, if you want to make it. Because the intention itself to the Dharma will take you all the way home, if you want it. And anti-fragility is a gift, and this willingness to be this beyond the beyond is a great gift to the world. One of my friends who's a Buddhist monk, who's on a plane that looked like it was going to be in an accident, and he said just holding this presence, he wasn't anxious. He didn't get panicked. Just the fact that there was one Buddhist monk on the plane who was calm, it just changed the whole nature of the plane and what happened, and the plane obviously didn't go down. But we can be that one person on the plane, in yourself. You know, we talk about sanctuary cities now. You're it. You and I, and Mark, and Eric, and Adrian, and Fern, we're it. 
where the sanctuary city, how you conduct yourself, how you're being right now, how you being when you go in downtown Yellow Springs, how you are when things don't work your way. You're it. So be that sanctuary city. That's what the Dharma is here for. Be the person in the plane that's going down that still has an open heart. Because, you know, we have zero control over changing condition. My teacher said, an unwise heart is anxious regarding suffering. An unwise heart gets anxious with suffering. So in a way, the Dharma, true Dharma is we're practicing a wise heart that does not get anxious with difficulty. That's anti-fragile. And if you do get anxious, that's okay. Be loving towards that. Be comfortable with imperfection. Be comfortable with uncertainty. Be comfortable with your anxious parts. It's not who you are. Be comfortable with everybody's anxious parts and their pain. A big part of anti-fragile I've also seen is the, the ability to say, I am willing I stole it from Byron Katie, but she she says, I think it's number six in some practices she gives. She says, you know, when you're faced with difficulty, just say, I'm willing to have this happen. I'm willing. So I can learn. And if you're not really willing, just that will that ability just to not get scared of it. That wise heart regarding suffering. The world needs more wise hearts. Praise, blame, gain, loss, being able to have a wise heart in changing conditions. Another part of anti-fragile is being impermanence ready. I mean, we all kind of know everything's going to change. I know my dog that I love is going to die before I do. And it, it's it's being again willing to just to feel as things change, to let yourself feel what that means for your heart. There's a Zen master who would hold up his favorite cup, and he would tell people, "You know this cup, I love it completely." But he said, "As I drink from it, I already consider it broken." So he was, he knew the impermanence as he was using it. That's anti-fragile. He already knew the cup was broken, yeah? But he still loved it the same. And we know each one of us in here is going to die, ourselves included. And we love this moment with each person in Yellow Springs. And just know, yes, each one of us will die. And and yet it's such a precious moment, isn't it? So beloved. We don't have to worry about that. It can be in the mix. The original version of the movie Shadowlands with Anthony Hopkins, it's a true story about um, C.S. Lewis. She's dying of cancer and they're having a really pleasant moment. And she goes, I want to talk about my death now. And he's like, no, this is like the most joyous moment. And she said, 
No, my death is part of the joy. And when you're grieving my death, the joy of this moment will be part of then. They're all part of the same thing. And I wouldn't even call that impermanence ready. I would just call that real, right? So she wanted to talk about death and joy, and he was going to remember that joy after her. she was gone. And impermanence ready can be a really beautiful thing. You know, my mom died when I was a kid. And when I was a teenager, my friends would be bitching about their parents. And I remember I knew so clearly that a parent could be gone at any moment. And the parent I was left with was not really the good one. Let's just put it that way. It really made my heart so much more tender about even when somebody's difficult, it's so important just to love anyways. And of course, I, I'd hear my friends, you know, complaining about their parents. I'd just say they had no idea. You know, they had no idea what it was like when Mother's Day rolled around and you didn't have a mother, you know, to even wish Mother's Day to. Happy Mother's Day. But that was all part of it, too. They didn't know, and that was okay. But I knew. It made each moment more important. So part of impermanence ready is just being willing to meet also impermanence with that willingness. There's a book called, actually for aging, as we age, called Younger Next Year. (laughs) It's a great concept, isn't it? (laughs) But they actually talk about you could actually anti-fragile. You could actually be younger next year in the way you think, in the way he talks about the way you can move your body and work with your health. That challenging, that being willing to face aging in a way that's anti-fragile. To face difficulty. Helen Luke says, the idea of aging is to move and measure like a dancer in midst of a refining fire. So one thing we can do with with the Dharma and the awareness and the listening is we move in measure. We get more quiet and more connected. And that doesn't mean we have to force ourselves to speed up. In fact, when the world speeds up, you can slow down. When things get more chaotic, you can get more quiet. That's anti-fragile. When the world gets more greedy, give more. Do the opposite thing sometimes. It's, It's amazing the effect it can have. Mark and I were talking earlier today that talking about impermanence and our technology, things that we rely on, it's all made, the cell phone that I'm recording on is made of what? Silica. What is silica? It is sand. Do you remember what the Bible said? Do not build your houses on castles of sand. Our whole lives bank accounts, businesses, everything we know now is in sand. And that's not to get us worried, but to be aware. Our castles and everything we know is in sand. 
And don't for a minute pretend it's not. So use it wisely. Have a wise heart and a soft heart with it. Knowing that it's impermanent. And lastly, just to mention, the Buddha talked about selflessness. And that's an anti-fragile concept. And a lot of people get confused about what that is. So if your mind's going into confusion, just try to let that one go. (laughs) It's really, you know, it's outgrowing the ego. We outgrow so many things. We outgrow toddlerhood. We outgrow teenagerhood, hopefully. (laughs) But we're supposed to outgrow the ego, actually. But our culture doesn't teach us that, does it? There's a poet on Maui, his name is W.S. Merwin, and he is actually a Zen student and a poet. He's in his 80s now, and one of my friends, he's going blind, one of my friends reads to him every week, a volunteer. And she said that he told her the other day, he said, I am retiring from the department of me. (laughs) So... That's probably a thing we could all consider, retiring from the department of me. What would that be like? You outgrew your ego. Maybe you can tell me, find out. You know, self-consciousness is a lot of work. (laughs) I notice that more and more. It's like a lot of work to be self-conscious, to be constantly thinking about how do I look, how did that sound? So really what we're trying to do in the Dharma is we're trying to find the you that's below all of that self-consciousness, the ego, to retiring from the department of me. What is the you that's below the clamor of thoughts? What's the you that when you leave your shoes outside your door and the burdens of the world, who are you? Just plain you. The word sadhana, you probably have heard of it. It's used in the yogic traditions. It's actually translated sometimes as a search for what to give up. <laughs> so you've been tricked in the spiritual practice actually search for what to give up. Unburdening the use, all the things you thought were you, like taking off old clothing. We're undoing ourselves, undoing all that we identify with, all that we thought we were. And the good news is that you become less and less, and actually it's, it's freeing. Although one teacher told me it can be a grief process as well. Well, I'm not this and I'm not that. There can be a sort of gloss and grief, but it's actually a relief. Like I said, self-consciousness is a lot of work. Judgment is a lot of work. Maharaj, he's a teacher in India, he said, you've probably heard this saying, it's very beautiful. When I look inside and see I am nothing, that is wisdom. When I look outside and see I am everything, that is love. And between these two, my life turns. So you look inside, you see you're nothing. You look out, you see you're everything. See that this is love. And between these, you're flowing between this nothingness and love. Dogen said, to know myself is to forget myself. To forget myself 
is to see myself in the 10,000 things. That's, that's what we're doing here. Emptying of self and filling up with all that is. It's a wonderful journey. Such a wonderful journey. You can tell I've done it 35 years. I must like it. <laughs> and more and more, I would just say, it's, it's coming to feel a vibration in your body about who you are. It's not a lot of thoughts. It's not a lot of Dharma teaching. I, I think I say less and less as time goes on. It's a feeling, an essence, a vibrational feel that you are. You're already it. And then you offer this to others, like my friend in the plane. We just offer this vibration body to body. And sometimes we're in it, sometimes we're not. That's fine. But the idea of practice is you make yourself able to listen and feel this presence that you are. So it's important to have a daily practice. It's really important, even if it's just five minutes. Look, I'll confess to you, sometimes I can only do five or ten minutes of stuff. I'm not doing hours a day. But just enough to put your toe in to go, this, this is why I'm here. This is what I'm committing to. This silence, this stillness. My teacher, Joseph Goldstein, said it's like going down to a river and just putting your toe in and saying, yeah, here's the river. Here it is. But you yourself have to know, why am I practicing? What am I doing in that five minutes or 20 minutes or an hour? What is it? What am I cultivating? Because whatever it is, you'll be doing it. And what we practice, we get better at. And even if your mind wanders, don't worry about it. If you're clear while you're sitting on that cushion, that alone will be the gift. So if you can, get clear. What are you going to practice every day and why? How are you going to be that sanctuary city? What is it you're going to be? Is it going to be generosity, love, emptiness? It's all okay. Whatever you want to be, just know what it is. I'm going to read a story that my friend Todd, who lives here, you might know him, Todd France, he sent me this story that's by Geraldine Edwards. It's set in Southern California. After about 20 minutes, we turned onto a small gravel road and I saw a small church. On the far side of the church, I saw a hand-lettered sign that read Daffodil Garden. We got out of the car and I followed my daughter and her children down the path. Then we turned the corner of the path and I looked up and gasped. Before me lay the most glorious sight. It looked as though someone had taken a great vat of gold and poured it down the mountain peak and slopes. The flowers were planted in majestic swirling patterns, great ribbons and swaths of deep orange, white, lemon, yellow, salmon pink, saffron, and butter yellow. 
Each different colored variety was planted as a group so it swirled and flowed like its own river with its unique hue. There were five acres of flowers. But who has done this? I asked my daughter. It's just one woman, she answered. She lives on the property, that's her home. She pointed to a well-kept farmhouse that looked small and modest in the midst of all that glory. We walked up to the house. On the patio, we saw a poster. Answers to the questions I know you are asking was the headline. The first answer was a simple one. 50,000 bulbs, it read. The second answer was one at a time by one woman. Two hands, two feet, and very little brain. The third answer was began in 1958. There it was, the daffodil principle. For me, that moment was a life-changing experience. I thought of this woman who I had never met, who for more than 40 years before had begun one bulb at a time to bring her vision of beauty and joy to an obscure mountaintop. Still, just planting one bulb at a time year after year had changed the world. The unknown woman had forever changed the world in which she lived, and she'd created something of indescribable magnificence, beauty, and inspiration. The principle her daffodil garden taught is one of the greatest principles of celebration, that is, learning to move towards our goals and desires one step at a time. We can change the world. So just to feel that, what is it you're planting? After I read this, I thought, what have I been planting for 50 years, 40 years? You know, as Dharma students, we're planning mindfulness. You came into here today and for 20 minutes, 25 minutes, an hour now, you've planted this willingness to show up with heart. Keep planting that bulb. Whatever your bulb is that you plant every day, that daily practice, know what it is, and then you're going to have a huge field of daffodils. And if you're older, you might look back and just see what is it you did plant. Seeds of compassion and kindness in your kids, generosity, and whatever is tomorrow, let's plant that together, okay? that is. That's why we're here. That's anti-fragile dharma. That's the deathless. That's the unborn. That's the vibration. Just one vibration. All right, I'm going to close with this roomy poem called One. One tree can start a forest. One bird can herald spring. One smile can begin a friendship. One hand can lift a soul. One star can guide a ship at sea. One word can frame the goal. One sunbeam can light a room. One candle can wipe out darkness. One laugh can conquer gloom. One hope can raise our spirits. One touch can show you care. One voice can wake up everybody. One life can make the difference. Be that one. Be that one. Let's sit for a minute.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.